Am I the only one that that song gets to them every time? <laughs> oh my. He's so good, is he? Is he not? Are we ready to go to God's Word this morning? This is, uh, I'm excited for what the Lord's about to share this morning. Um, I hope you are too. You guys awake? No? You're awake? You're awake? You're about to be, because I... Uh, I'm a little fired up about what he's got to share this morning. You're like, that's new. <laughs> it's so good to be in our Father's house and to worship him. And just to declare together, he's our king. He's our king. He's in control. He's seated on the throne. No weapon formed against him will stand, right? Nations will crumble. Enemies will rise up and go away, but our king still sits on the throne. He's still, in, he's still in charge. And so we can sit here in freedom this morning, stand here in freedom, and we can declare his name in ways that other people can't. And there's brothers and sisters around the world that can't have the freedom, that don't have the freedom we have, but yet they can still come to worship and they can still declare he is king. And that declaration is just a proof that our God still reigns among every other thing. And whatever you have going on in your life right now this morning, I hope that that just resonates in your heart. Whatever, the, whatever you're struggling with, whatever you're coming up against this week or later today, that God is king. Jesus is on the throne and he has defeated sin, he's defeated death. And because we sing, he is king, that reorients our entire perspective right this moment. Like that. Just reorients us to a place where we are unstoppable for him. So let's go to him and as we go to his word this morning. Let's just go to him in prayer one more time and then we'll get started. Father, we just love you. We praise you, we worship you. Lord, we want to be a church that every single part of us is just aligned to you and your kingdom and your glory. And we want to seek you this morning, Lord. I ask that you would speak. I ask that you would wake us up. I ask that you would allow us to hear uh, what you want to say. Lord, uh, as I've been praying, I just ask that your Holy Spirit would awaken the lives of all of us in this church. That you would give us a passion for your word, a hunger for your word. That you would give us a, a passion for your presence. That we would want, not just for you to visit us, but for you to remain. And for you to be, to, to be uh, part of our lives each and every moment of each and every day, Lord. Uh, Lord, we recognize, even in this moment right now, that there are people here that are part of our body that aren't here this morning because they're sick, because they're struggling, because uh, for whatever reason they couldn't be here this morning. And Lord, I just ask that you administer to them, that you'd bring healing, that you would uh, allow them to, to sense your presence here this morning, and, and that they would know that they are loved by you. Lord, I ask that for all those in our congregation here this morning, that you would bring healing where healing's needed, that even if it's emotional healing or, or mental healing, Lord. And I, I also pray this morning, Lord, that, that you would help us with all the distractions of this world, with all the distractions of the day, that we would just have these brief moments right now that we share, and that this time wouldn't be a time where I just transfer information uh, from a guy on stage speaking to a group of people. No, Lord, we, I ask that the very word of God would transform hearts and lives this morning. And that you would use a weak vessel that I am to bring about life change through the power of your word and the presence of your Holy Spirit. So that we would leave here changed, Lord. I know for many of us here that are every single week, many people under the sound of my voice hear this week after week. But Lord, I mean it. I ask that you would change us from the inside out. That we would be different this week because we were here today. 
I'd ask that you're changing us as we look more and more like Jesus would impact those who we see this week, whether it's at school, whether it's at work, whether it's at Turkey Hill, wherever we go, Lord, that we would be a light for you, that people would see a difference in us, and that difference would be how we live with our lives aligned to you, and that that difference would draw people to yourself. We'd be able to share, each one of us would have the opportunity this week to share about the hope that we have and share the name of Jesus. Because this isn't just a, Lord, we recognize, this church, we recognize that this isn't just a thing that we do on Sunday morning. This is life or death. This is bringing the kingdom of God to a world that desperately needs it. And the freedom that we have in Jesus Christ to people that are held captive. So Lord, help us, empower us, and use me now. I can't do this on my own. I need you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you haven't been here, you're actually uh, stepping into a series we're doing during all the month of February called The Father's Heart. The Father's Heart. And I just had the idea for this series. It's February. It's the season of love. You know, uh, Valentine's Day weekend was this past weekend. and Or th- this weekend, Friday night, Valentine's Day. And, you know, there's hearts everywhere. And so I, I thought we'd ask the question, what is the Father's Heart? What's God the Father's Heart? What's, what is, what's really makes his whole heart tick? What, what is his heart towards us? And if we look at that, how do we understand how our hearts can be changed and how our lives can be changed as we represent him or present him to the world? And we've been doing that in, uh, in what, you know, I gotta be honest with you, for me, it's just a weird way. I didn't expect God to lead me this way, but we're doing it using, uh, using the minor prophets from the Old Testament. The minor prophets from the Old Testament. Maybe you've read them before. Maybe you're reading them now. Maybe you've decided to skip over them in the past, and now you're like, I'm gonna read them now. Uh, they're minor prophets, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they're insignificant prophets. It's not like these are the guys that, you know, you're second fiddle to the Lord, right? No, they're the minor prophets because they're shorter, which is great, because you can read them faster, and, you know, there's, but there's a lot packed in to the couple of chapters in each of these prophets, and we've been looking at them, just trying to understand uh, what the Father's heart is in each one. And so today we're going to be in the minor prophet Joel. Joel. Um, so you can turn there if you want, if you have a Bible. If you don't have a Bible, you can grab it on your phone and, and go into it. If, if that doesn't work for you, there's Bibles on the table right inside the door each and every week. Pick one up, and if you don't have one at home, take it with you. But we're going to be in the minor prophet of Joel. And Joel uh, is an interesting uh, minor prophet. Um, before I get into that, how many of you like coffee? Oh my goodness, my people! My people, yes. You love coffee. I love coffee a lot. I just love coffee. Um, you, you remember the c- commercial, the best part of waking up is? Yes, if we could only be as good at marketing as Folgers as Christians, we'd have the whole world, you know, saved by now. But yeah, Folgers in your cup. Now, I think Folgers, just to be honest, I think it's terrible coffee. I think we can do better than that. Um, but, you know, the best part of waking up, because, and, and that's actually true for uh, me, that commercial was true. You know, it's like the guy sleeping in bed, and then the coffee's percolating, and then he's like, and he wakes up. Like, that's how much I love coffee. If you brew coffee in my house and I'm sleeping, I guarantee you'll see me in the kitchen in the next few minutes with a cup, right? Like, that's me. I love coffee. It wakes me up. It gets me ready. Some of you think I drink too much coffee on Sunday mornings. 
Yes, I do. But I love, I love coffee. It's one of my most favorite things in the world. It's a guilty pleasure of mine. But really, the thing about coffee is it wakes us up. And that's really, if you want to understand Joel, if you want to kind of understand what Joel, the book of Joel, is all about, that's what it is. It's a wake-up call. It's a shot into all of the people that listen to it, that read it, to wake up because God has something to say. It's the second in the minor prophets. But you know that Joel was one of the earliest, if not the earliest minor prophet that we have. So our Bibles aren't written chronologically, so you have to understand that. His was probably sometime in the 800 BC, but Joel was one of the oldest that we had. It was recorded, he was probably after King Solomon, for those of you who know who King Solomon is, but before exile. That's where he was, somewhere in that range, and he was probably, most scholars believe that Joel was probably a student of Elisha. That you remember Elisha, he was probably a student of his, and his book was written, this book that we're about to look at, was written at a time where there was a lot of things that have gone wrong in Israel. It's kind of a common theme we see in these minor prophets, right? A lot of things had gone wrong. Uh, there were bad leaders. Um, there was a national plague, which we're going to talk about in a little minute, a couple minutes, a national plague that happened that affected the whole nation. There was civil unrest. There was economic problems. And Joel's job was to diagnose the problem. That was his job. It was a wake-up call. He was to diagnose the problem. You see, the people of Israel thought there was all kinds of things wrong. They recognized. They looked around. They were like, there's a lot wrong with our nation right now. And Joel came, and he actually said, oh, you know what? Really? There's only one thing that's wrong. There's only one thing that's wrong, and, uh, you know, Joel kind of reminds me of this story about, do you ever hear the story about the guy that goes to the doctor's office, and the doctor's like, what's wrong with him? And he's like, it hurts all over. And he's like, what do you mean? He's like, it hurts everywhere. And he's like, I don't understand what you mean. He's like, can you point out where it hurts? He's like, well, yeah, it hurts here, it hurts here, it hurts here, it hurts here. And the doctor's like, you dummy, your finger's dislocated, (laughs) right? Like, The nation thinks there's all these things wrong, and Joel's like, no, there's only one thing wrong. And it's important to us, because you see, for a lot of us, if we're honest, there's a lot of things going wrong in our lives sometimes. We can point to things that aren't as they should be, and when we try to figure out what's wrong, what are all these problems all about, the truth is that we'll find from Joel this morning that really, and when we boil it all down to brass tacks, what really is wrong is one thing. And it's a very unpopular word. Sin. That's what's wrong. You see, the big, the big story in this, in this book, our scriptures, the big story paints this picture of the fact that the world as it is now is not how it should be. It wasn't how it was designed to be. In fact, when God created it, he said it was good. And then he created us and he said it was very good. And then because of our rebellion against him, something happened. Sin came in. But before that, do you know that the world was created so that there was no suffering? Did you know that the world was created so there was no disease? You know the world was created so there was no cancer. You know the world was created so there was no earthquakes, no floods, no famines, no destruction. The world was created to truly be heaven on earth. And then something happened. Sin. It came in. And Romans 3.22 says that all of us have sinned. All of us have fallen short of the glory of God. We're all sinners. But not only did sin affect us as human beings, we know from places like Genesis, from places like Romans 8, that sins actually affected the world itself. God said the curse that came upon the world through sin in Genesis 3, he says that even the ground would be cursed. There is something wrong. 
And there's many problems in this world. There's many problems with the people in this world. And a lot of the things that all of us have gone through in this world and are going through even now is because of this. Sometimes the sin that is in this world affects you, and it's not because you did anything, but it's because there are people who sin who have done things to you. And we're kidding ourselves as individualist Americans, as people that live in this postmodern world, to think that whatever you do doesn't have ripple effects on the world around you. Everything you do affects someone else, and sin has effects that have a ripple effect into hitting everybody. And some of you have gone through things because of that. Some of you have gone through things in your life because of sin, and God allows you to go through those things. Yeah. Sometimes God causes things to happen, as we're going to talk about today, because of our sin. It's what he does. Just, sometimes he allows it to happen just to get our attention, just to wake us up. Sin permeates everything. And in the year 825 BC, something happened in the nation of Israel, the southern nation of Judah. Something happened because of their sin. It was a gigantic locust plague. A locust plague, right? It's pretty gross. This is what it says in Joel chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. This is Joel talking to the people. He says, hear this, you elders. Listen, all who live in this land. Has anything like this ever happened in your days or in the days of your ancestors? Tell it to your children and let your children tell it to their children and their children to the next generation. Verse 4, what the locust swarm has left The great locusts have eaten what the great locusts have left. The young locusts have eaten what the young locusts have left. Other locusts have eaten. It was a gigantic plague of all of these locusts coming in. Have you ever seen a locust? No? If you want to think about it in your head, basically think of a grasshopper that's about three inches long or even longer with like a heavily armed military helmet on. Like they're just, I mean, they're just mean with like big teeth. They're gross, they're gross, they're gross uh, insects. And, and they have this policy when they swarm into a place. They have what I would call a scorched earth policy. Those of you who are in the military know what I'm talking about. You know what a scorched earth policy is? That's when you're in the military, like you send people into battle or you send things into battle and you just destroy everything. You, you send bombs, you burn everything up so that all that's left at the end is just the scorched earth, right? Just stubble, just everything's dirt. There is nothing left. That's what locusts would do. We actually have historical accounts of locusts in other times in other places in the world where they would go in and they would decimate everything. And this is what Joel's saying to them about all of these locusts, and we're not sure whether it's like the progression of more than one locust or if it's how the locusts were moved from being smaller locusts to growing up, but what we do know is that what locusts do is they eat every vegetation in sight, everything, down to the ground, and then we have some accounts from the modern world that when they were done with all the vegetation, they would actually turn to other things that were eating, and so some locust swarms were known to like eat the wood of the house, and if they got into your house, they would eat your curtains. I mean, they would eat everything, and this is what Joel's talking about, and this, the people that would have listened to Joel would have been part of this. They would have witnessed this swarm coming, They would have witnessed what happened. They would have had the disaster in their lives. And Joel was pointing to this locust plague that had happened. And he said, listen, there's some things that I don't want you to miss. Things that you need to understand in light of this scorched earth that you see around you. The first thing is, he tells them, tell the leaders of this nation not to forget this. 
We already read this in verse 3. Tell your children and let your children tell their children and their children to the next generation. Do not forget this plague. Do not forget what it feels like to have the earth around you destroyed because this is how important what I'm about to share with you. He goes on in verse 5 and he says, tell the drunks their source is gone. Like they need to wake up too. The people that are drunk, they wake up drunkards and weep. Wail, all you drinkers of wine. Wail because the new wine... For it has been snatched from your lips. He tells the drunkards to wake up. He tells the farmers to wake up because their income is gone. Despair, you farmers. Wail, your vine growers. Grieve for the wheat and the barley because the harvest of the field is destroyed. He says, everything, listen, everything's gone. Whether you're drinking and being merry, trying to forget about it or trying to miss it through your drunkenness, whether you're an adult, a parent, tell your kids about this. If you're a farmer, you don't got anything to farm anymore. You have no crops to harvest. Everything is laid waste. And Joel is saying, wake up, because this plague is a picture. This plague is a picture of what God is trying to do. God is trying to wake you up because the nation is going against everything that God has asked them to do. And he's trying to wake them up. The nation's sin needed a wake-up call. And Joel said, wake up. This locust plague needs to get your attention because if you don't wake up from this plague, something worse is going to happen. Something worse is going to happen. And he tells them it's going to be a nation. A nation called Babylon is going to come, and they're going to invade you, and you're going to lose your land. So this locust swarm is a warning sign to you to wake, wake up. It's a jolt of coffee. In verse 15, he says what this is. He says, alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is here, and it will come like destruction from the Almighty. This is a big theme in the book of Joel. A big thing, this idea of the day of the Lord. In fact, it's mentioned five times in the three chapters that we have. And, it's, and what the day of the Lord is, is it could be an extraordinary event of God's judgment, just like the locust, right? So that could be the day of the Lord. It could be uh, a future day where God brings judgment. And the whole second half of the book of Joel, if you want to read it after church today, is about him talking about the day of the Lord and the judgment to nations because of their disobedience to God. But the day of the Lord could also be this day, this final day that the scriptures even outside of Joel talk about, where the Lord will return and where he will judge the world. And he will judge those that are in Christ to spend eternity with him and those that are outside of Christ to spend eternity in hell. The day of the Lord. And some people, a lot of people don't like this. I could tell from your body language. We don't like to talk about sin and we don't like to talk about the day of the Lord. Nobody came to church, you know, can't you just talk about a message, pastor, it's going to make me feel good? We're getting there. But the day of the Lord is a wake-up call, and it's a promise that one day it's going to happen. And here's the thing I know. I know some of you, you hear this, and you start to turn your hearts away because you don't like it. I've met people that have said, I can't love a God that's going to bring judgment. I've seen people that have walked away from it. That sounds, God bringing judgment, God bringing locust swarms, God bringing judgment on the world. Man, that sounds really cruel. Isn't God love? I've met people that have turned their back on God because they, can't, they say they can't believe in a God who would bring such destruction now or in the future. But here's the thing. This is what people don't recognize, is that people, all of us, we've already all turned our back on God. 
We've already all decided to go our own way. We've already all decided to walk in a way that's outside of his will. And the end of that is already going to be destruction. Do you understand that? What we understand about sin, and if you've lived in sin, you know this. You know that our sinful nature is a nature that leads us. If we follow our our inclinations, if we follow the urges and surges of our minds and life, if we follow all of the things that we think are right to a man, that the wages of that is a one-way trip, a train that's running away, and eventually all it's going to do is crash in a heap. God knows that's going to happen. And when you understand that the wake-up call, that the judgment that God brings in this life is not to destroy you, it's actually God's mercy to get your attention, then you understand that God's not a mean God. God is getting your attention and bringing judgment because he's a God that loves you and wants to save you from the reality of what ends at the other side of not walking with him. And so every judgment he brings is a wake-up call. And whenever God uses any judgment, even the locusts, even whatever he's done in your life, which we're about to talk about, when he uses these judgments, you understand it is his mercy. It's because of its love. It's his Father's heart to bring you a wake-up call because he knows if you do not wake up, if you do not turn to him, that at the end of that is something that's going to be worse. It's going to be worse than what he does in this life because at the end of it, if you perish without knowing Christ and without turning your life to him, the other side of that is final and it's eternal. And so God wants to wake the world up. He wants to wake the nation and Joel up. He wants to wake us up this morning and say, wake up. This locusts have come to wake you up. And if you don't turn, Babylon's going to come. Babylon's going to destroy you. You're going to lose the gift of your birthright, this nation that I have given you. Look at what he says about the locusts and the nation that's coming in Babylon. In verse, chapter 1, verse 5, he says, A nation has evaded my land, a mighty armor without, without number. It has teeth of a lion and the fangs of a lioness. It has laid to waste my vines and my ruin and my fig trees. It stripped off their bark and thrown it away, leaving their branches white. What Joel's doing here, and I know we've talked about this through the last few weeks, sometimes it's hard to read these prophetic books and understand that what Joel's doing here is he's talking about the reality of what they all saw with the locusts, and he's drawing a direct correlation to what's going to happen in the nation when the army of Babylon comes in if they do not wake up and turn back to God. And he goes on in verse two, or chapter 2, he says, The day of the Lord is a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and blackness, like the dawn spreading across the mountains, and a large, mighty army comes, such as never was in ancient times or will ever be in ages to come. He tells him, if you don't wake up, this army that no one's ever seen, that looks like a swarm of locusts, is going to come. And then before them, fire devours. Behind them, flame blazes. Before them, the land is like the Garden of Eden. And behind them, it's a desert waste. He says this scorched earth policy that you see from the locusts is going to be the same policy of this nation that is coming. And this nation is coming because you are turned your back to me. He goes on in verse 4 and he says this. They have the appearance of horses and they gallop along like cavalry. With a noise of that of chariots, they leap over the mountaintops like a crackling fire consuming stubble, like a mighty army drawn up for battle. 
The literary imagery in, in, the, in the prophet's words from God is just beautiful, but it's also terrifying. He's trying to wake them up. He's trying to wake them up to the reality that they've turned away from God. And what we see in this part of Joel that, we, that we've been talking about so far is really a picture of another unpopular word. Aren't you glad you came today? Another unpopular word called wrath. The wrath of God. You see, one thing we see in this, this book of Joel is we see the active wrath of God. We see God actually using something actively and sending it to the nation to wake them up, like the locusts, right? And you may think that God's mean for doing this, but if you're a parent in the room, you tell me when your two-year-old runs out into traffic from your driveway, do you grab them and give them a little swat and say, don't ever do that again? Yes, you do. Why? Because they're running into danger and you have to take action to wake them up, right? This makes sense to us, right? That's the way that we parent. In fact, if you didn't do that, you would, if, you, if I was with you and my kid ran out into traffic and I was like, oh, look at her go, right? You'd be like, man, that guy doesn't love his daughter at all. That's what God's doing with these locusts. But there's also what we see here is the passive wrath of God. These are the consequences of our actions. And in parents, you do this too, right? This is our father's heart we're talking about, remember? You do this too. Like when you're like, to yourself, you're like, I've told him not to do that about 20 times. So you know what? I'm gonna let him do it. And then when he bumps his head, you're like, well, there you go. Consequences, right? And that's what we see too, is because God says, I have called you, I have called you, I have begged you to come back to me, to turn back to me, and if you don't, I'm going to remove my protection. I'm going to remove myself from the problem. I'm going to stop saving you and creating a protection around the nation of Israel and a nation of Babylon who wants to take over the entire central part of the world during this time. I'm just going to sit back and let them take you. This is what God does. And disciplining your children this way is not a bad thing, right? If you didn't discipline your children this way, you wouldn't love them. But the athlete, well, we need to understand, at the end of this, whether it's the passive or the active wrath of God, the destruction and the pain that comes is not who, it's not because of God. God doesn't destroy. His wrath doesn't destroy. You know what destroys? Sin. That's what destroys. It's sin. It kills us. The, the wages of sin is death. And so God is trying to use his correction to wake them up. And once you understand that, you'll start to understand and to see earthly examples of God's judgment, like the plague of locusts in this book, as expressions of God's mercy. Because God is always trying. He is. He's always trying to get us to turn back to him before it's too late before something worse happens. You see, the whole point of Joel, the whole point of Joel's message, what Joel is coming to say as he tells him to, to wake up, is he is trying to get a nation to look at the locusts and to hear about Babylon coming and wake them up and say, turn away from the path you are walking that's going to lead to your own destruction. Turn away from the path that you are walking that's going to ruin your relationships. Turn away from the path that you are walking that is in direct disobedience to God, that's going to harm your relationship with God, that's going to harm your relationship 
relationship with others around you and turn back to me and walk in the path that I've given you. Walk in the truth of my law. Walk in the way that I've called you to because if you turn back to me and you walk toward me, what we also see in Joel is the promise from God that if you turn away from sin and you turn towards me, that I will forgive you. I will love you. I will receive you. No matter what, it's never too late for you to turn back to me. That's the message in Joel. It doesn't matter how far you've gone. It doesn't matter how much you've experienced. If you turn back, there is always forgiveness on the other side. And that act, that act of walking down the wrong path and turning back to him, there's a biblical word for it. It's called repentance. It's called repentance. And Joel's call, his cry from God, from the heart of the Father, is turn back to me. Don't you see the things that you are doing, the things that you are continuing to do lead to death. And so I am going to do something to wake you up. You see, Eugene Peterson, one of my favorite theologians who's with the Lord now, he he talks about repentance. He actually says that God's arrows, those things that sting sometimes, their judgments aimed at provoking our repentance. He wants to wake us up because of his love. He doesn't want us to be left to our own devices. He knows where that leads. It's the same reason why you don't leave a two-year-old at home alone, right? You know where that leads. Peter says, says this too, I love this. This is probably the best definition I've ever heard of uh, repentance in his book, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. He says, repentance is not an emotion. It's not a feeling sorry for your sins. It's a decision. It's a decision that you have been wrong in supposing that you could manage your own life and be your own God. Yes? Isn't this fun? It's deciding that you were wrong and thinking that you had or could get the strength, the education, the training to make it on your own. It's deciding that you have been told a pack of lies about yourself and about your neighbors and about your world. And it's deciding that God and Jesus Christ is telling you the truth. It's deciding that you understand that what this world says is right. The way that feels right to a man is wrong. And it will lead you to destruction. It is understanding that God is standing here. He is calling to each and every one of us to turn from the places in your life that are leading to that and turn back to me. And sometimes it's emotional. It is. I've had emotional places in life, my life where I've repented, where I have got on my knees and I have wept over my brokenness. But some, it's not always that way. Sometimes it's less emotional. Sometimes it's a decision like he talks about here. But it's understanding that God wants us to turn. This is what Joel tells them. Despite everything he said to them, in Joel 2, verse 12, he says this, Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, weeping, and mourning. Even now. Because there's no way that you could go too far for me. There's always a place for you to turn back to me. So turn back to me. And he says, rend your heart, not your garments. 
Change your heart, change your life. Don't just pull your garments, you see, because in Joel's time, if people were grieving, if people were upset, if there was an emotional point of repentance, they would literally tear, you know, kind of like Superman, but not in that way. They would tear their garments to show that they were in grief. They would take dust and ashes off the ground and throw them on their heads to show that they were grieved, that they were weeping over the condition of their sin, and they needed to turn back to God. And Joel said to them, listen, don't do the action. Don't just say I'm sorry. Don't just say I need forgiven that I've gone the wrong way. Literally tear your heart open and say, you know what? I recognize there are places in my life, and I don't care if you've been serving God for three months or whether you've been saved for 80 years. There are places in your life that are still not fully sanctified by the Holy Spirit, and God still has work to do with you until you go to see him, and he makes you just like he always wanted you to be. And he says, don't just tear it. Don't just say you're sorry. Really, change your heart. Change your heart. When David slept with Bathsheba and then the prophet Nathan came to him and told him that he, was, that he sinned, that he had killed a man to sleep with a woman and that they had a child and that child would die. He penned a poem that shows us the kind of heart, a man after God's own heart, the kind of heart that God's looking for no matter how far you've gone. And some of us have never gone that far to kill somebody to sleep with their wife, right? But he writes in Psalm 51, he says, God, you do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You don't take pleasure in burnt offerings either. My sacrifice, oh God, is a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart. That's what you, God, will not despise. That's what you want is a changed heart. You see, our Father's heart, if you want to stand, understand God the Father, He has a heart for repentance. He has a heart where He is calling out. And it's not just Joel, it's all through this book. He is calling out, telling you to change your heart, change your life, quit walking the path that you're going on. He's sending men called prophets to the nation of Israel, and He's saying, Stop going that way. Turn back to me. I promise it's not when you get yourself fixed up, it's not when you're all fixed up and you're ready to live like a Christian that I'm going to take you back. No, it's the very moment that you say, I am at the end of myself and I want to turn to you. In that moment, he takes you back. That's his heart. His heart is to call and say, turn to me. Walk away from those things. Joel teaches us, if nothing else, it teaches us that God's heart is for our repentance, for our change toward him. And it it's also teaches us that God's very serious about our sin. He is. He takes it deathly seriously. That's not even a joke. Maybe there's something that's going on in your life right now. As I've been preaching, the Holy Spirit's been talking to you about things in your life that you know still are not turned toward him. Maybe you have locusts eating away at you. And you know that there's places, there's spaces, there's urges in your life that you continue to give into. And each time you do, they bring death. They don't bring what you think they will. Sometimes, and maybe God's being active in it, like you're trying to save money, and you're trying to save money, and you're trying to get out of a hole, and it seems like stuff just keeps breaking, 
in your life, breaking down in your life, and, and you think that's the problem, or maybe you're trying to improve your marriage, and you're trying to invest in your life together, and then there's always new conflicts, and there's always new problems popping up, and that's what's going on in your life, and those things keep, keep going wrong, and, or maybe you're just trying all these strategies to get happy, like you've tried everything. You buy a new phone, you buy a new outfit, you buy a new purse, you buy a new car, you buy a new whatever, you upgrade the countertops, whatever it is, all these things to make you happy. But it always feels like no matter what you try, it's skin-deep pseudo-happiness. It never really actually makes you feel like you want to feel. Maybe your problem is that you're constantly having to escape from real life. Maybe that's what you're going through. You feel like you have to escape from your life because life isn't happy. And so you turn to things like shopping. You turn to things like TV. You turn to things like pornography. You turn to things like hobbies that are okay, but you know what? If you do them all the time and they consume you, they're not okay because they've become something that you've put your love in rather than God himself. And you find as you pursue those things, some of us, we've turned to drinking, we've turned to drugs, we've turned to things that numb us from the reality that the life is not as it should be and we're not happy. And you know what that means, folks, when we do those things? And I will tell you that I do those things. You know what it, we, what it tells us when we're searching after things in the way things that are wrong and things seem to never go right and we never seem to find what we're looking for? What it should tell us is that God is trying to wake us up. Because here's the thing. No strategy is going to fix you. The solution isn't going to be found in the horizontal. You're not going to be able to find it on Amazon. The only solution for what ails you is found vertically. There's no other solution. And here's, I got good news and I got bad news for you. I'll give you the bad news first. God has more locusts than you have strategies. God has more locusts than you have strategies. And in order for God to bring you to your senses, he is going to have to bring you to the end of yourself. In order for God to make you new, I've witnessed this, he is going to have to rip you down, to tear you up, remove all of the old out of you, so that he can put something new in you. And you know what? Joel teaches, teaches us that. He does he teaches us if we would take our sin as serious as God would, and if we would have the eyes that God has to say that we're walking on paths in our life that we need to turn back to him, Joel also tells us that God is a God of repentance, and he's a God of forgiveness. He's a God who will accept us. That's what he says time and time again. This is what Joel says in Joel 2.13. He says this, Return to God, for he is gracious and compassionate. He's slow to anger and abounding in love. He relents from sending calamity. This is what Joel is saying. Why does God want you to turn? He wants you to turn because his heart is gracious. And he has unending grace for you if you would turn back to him. His heart is merciful. His reasoning for trying to wake you up is because he doesn't want to see you continue to hurt yourself. And he has love and mercy towards you. He says he's not easily angered. Yeah, you think that God's mean when he brings the wrath that he brings. No, what we understand from Joel is that no, he's actually been patient a real long time. 
And we've probably been annoying him a real long time. And he's finally got to the place where he says, would you stop hurting yourself, child? Would you stop doing things that are destroying yourself? Some of you are parents of teenagers. I was a youth pastor for a long time. I have sat and watched youth do things and say things and make choices. And from on my inside, I am screaming out to them. I know where the direction of what you're doing is going to take you. I've done it myself. Would you stop it and just follow Jesus? Because you're not going to find what you're looking for there. Joel tells us that God has that same heart. He's waiting for them to turn. He's waiting for us to turn. He says he's, he's abounding in love. That there's no limit to his love. He has more than we would ever need if we would just turn to him. He even says that he's not eager to punish. He doesn't want to punish you. He doesn't want you to have to step back and let you bang your head because you just won't listen. He doesn't want to send an arrow to provoke you to repentance. He wants, his heart wants you to turn to him and have life in him. That's the father's heart. That's who he is. And we see this not even in Joel. We see this in the New Testament time and time again. You know the story of the prodigal son, don't you? The prodigal son who takes his money from his dad early, his inheritance early, and he goes and he squanders it all away and he's literally eating Finally, at the end of all of his finding, trying to find joy in other things, eating pea pods with pigs in the mud. And he says to himself, you know what? I know this about my father. I don't know if he's going to forgive me, but I know that it's better to be a slave in my father's house than be here eating with pigs in the mud. And so he gets up and he goes to his father. And Jesus says, if you want to know the heart of your father, this is what it is. Luke, he says in Luke 15, he says, while he was a long way off. You hear me? He says, while he was a long way off. Not when he finally turned and worked it out and stopped doing all the things that we like to do. As Christians, we like to make sure that new Christians check all these boxes before we're really saved, right? No, that's not what God says at all. He says, while he was still a long way off, right after he turned, it says that his father lifted up his, lifted up his robe, which was disgraceful to do, and he ran to him. And he forgave him, and he received him, and he showed him that God, that he is gracious. He showed him that he is merciful. He showed him that he's loving. He showed him that he would receive him no matter what if he would just turn back to him, right? That's what we see. Jesus says that's the picture of God. That's the picture of the Father's heart, the Father's heart for repentance. And the same picture is in Joel. That wasn't a new idea with Jesus telling that parable. Joel says to the people in Joel 2.14, he says, who knows? If you turn to him, maybe he'll turn and relent. And maybe he'll leave behind a blessing. Maybe he'll give you offerings and drink offerings for the Lord your God. Maybe if you just turn to him, who knows? Maybe this won't happen. Maybe the calamity won't happen. And God says, you're right, it won't. In verse 25, he says, I will repay you for the years that the locusts have eaten. I will restore you. I, the great locust, the young locust, the other locusts in the swarm, the great army I sent among you, I, if you turn to me, I will give back to you everything. You will have plenty to eat until you're full. And you will praise the name of your Lord, your God, who has worked wonders for you. And never again with, will my people be ashamed. 
That's what God says. If you turn to me, I will work wonders in your life and you will never experience shame again. Because shame is not the conviction of God. It is the work of the devil training, teaching your heart that you are beyond forgiveness and that you are defined by your last action rather than Jesus' cross and the blood that he shed for you on it. And so he says, if you turn to me, you will never be shamed again. That's what, that's what Joel says. If you turn to me, I'm going to do this for you. Just like the father did in the parable of the lost son. And that's not all. Can you believe there's more? Not only going to forgive you. Not only going to receive you. Not only going to feel you. I'm going to work wonders. But I'm going to do something else. After you repent, I'm going to pour myself out on you. That's what he says in Joel 2. He says, and afterward... After you turn back to me, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. And he goes on, because there's more. And I will show wonders in the heavens and on earth, blood and fire, billows of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. I'm glad I'm the only one excited about that here this morning. Wake up, church. This is the best news there ever was. And what God is saying to you this morning is that there are things in your life. Listen, I have said this time and time again. I'm going to go over this morning, and I'm sorry for that. That I am tired of hearing stories about the way that God has moved in the past and not seeing him move in my lifetime. I am tired of seeing, hearing stories about the way that God is moving in the globe, the way that the Holy Spirit is transforming lives, the way that the goodness of God, Jesus himself, showing up in the presence of, of Muslims, leading them to himself. I am tired of just playing church. I want, us to, I want us to see the kingdom come and God's glory to be done, and I want it to happen here. But I believe with all of my heart, one of the reasons why God is asking me to preach about this is that we as a church have to adopt his heart and to stop being Christians that are comfortable in our freedom and start being Christians that seek his heart. And the only way we're going to see the goodness of God and the Holy Spirit pour out on this place is if you and I would get real about what it means to serve a holy God and what it means for our lives to be holy as he is holy, which means that in every single area of our lives that's outside of what he wants for us, that we have to repent and we have to turn away from the death and the darkness that we're walking in and turn to him and receive his goodness and his grace and his mercy so that he would transform us into people that look more like him. And then we will see his spirit pour out on us and we will see the young men and the old men prophesy. We'll see the old women and the young women dream dreams and we will see his power come in this place. And then no one, nothing, no sin, no fortress, no government program, nothing will stand in the way of the good news of Jesus Christ permeating in Palmyra. But it takes us, it takes our church, it takes us to take this seriously. It takes us as a church to understand this is the heart of God. And it takes us to understand that if we would turn our hearts away from the sins in our lives and take it really seriously, that the promise is not that we'll be miserable. The promise is not that we won't have any fun. 
The promise is that we will have all of the goodness of God and he will display wonders that we would never have seen before and our lives wouldn't be and our faith wouldn't be telling stories about the things that used to happen. It would be telling stories about the things that God just did. That's what he wants. And it comes down to repentance. I know that's not popular and I don't care. Those guys, the other pastors that preach about other stuff, good for them. They can teach their chicken soup for the soul. This is what it comes down to. It comes down to repentance. It comes down to taking it seriously because this is the story from God from day one. He sent John the Baptist into the wilderness to preach and say, get ready for Jesus. Repent of your sins and be baptized. Change your heart and change your life because he is coming. And then Jesus went on the scene and he said, repent of your sins, change your heart, change your life and receive the good news of the kingdom of God. And then when Paul, when not Paul, when Peter was standing in front of people on Pentecost, on the day of Pentecost, and he preached to them the message of the good news, and the Holy Spirit fell on all people, people were cut to the heart, and they said, what must we do to be saved? And you know what he did? He spoke Joel to them. And he said, a day will come where the Holy Spirit's going to fall and people are going to be changed and they're going to be transformed and the Holy Spirit's going to fall upon the world and anyone who calls in the name of Jesus will be saved. And guess what, folks? That's the same message for today. And it's not as if after that happened on the day of Pentecost that God said, well, that was fun. I'm done. No, it isn't. And it's not like the day that you became saved, God said, well, that's, that's good. We got another person that got their, their fire insurance taken care of. I'm done with them. No. God wants every single part of you. He wants every single part of me. And he wants our church, from the young to the old, to take sin seriously. But understand that under the guise of his sin being taken seriously, that we have to also understand that he takes forgiveness even more serious. But what it takes is for us to make a decision to say that we've been sold a pack of lies, that we believe the things that we are doing to bring us freedom in this life and satisfaction in this life are nothing but lies from the devil and to turn back to him. And when we do, even if we're still a long way off, he will meet us with love and forgiveness. But it's gonna take us to be a church that takes the Father's heart for repentance seriously. But the promise on the other side is worth it. Because Jesus said, if you would repent of your sins and believe in this good news, you could come and follow me. The other side isn't misery. The other side is good news. And I'm up here to tell you, it's the best news there ever was. So, I'm going to ask the band to come up. and I just want to take, take some time and Maybe you just, maybe you need to repent. Maybe there's something in your life that, that you know it's outside of his grace. It's outside of what he wants for you. It's outside of his grace. It's outside of his, his desires for you. Maybe today's the day we all decide as this church, you know what, we're done. We're done with it. We're going to turn back to him. We're going to understand the promise on the other side of this. And we're, you're going to say once and for all, God, I confess that I sin against you. I can't do this on my own anymore. 
I repent. Change my heart. Change my life. Remove this habit. Remove this thought pattern. Remove this action from my life. Today I decide that I am taking my relationship with you seriously. So, Because on the other side, I want more of you. As you guys play, we're just going to have a time where we have the opportunity to do that. I don't care if you want to do it in the aisle. I don't care if you want to do it in your seat. I don't care if you want to do it up here. But I beg you, church, take what the Lord is saying this morning to you seriously. The other side is freedom. The other side is forgiveness. Let's do this now.